This morning, I want to begin the series in a message called Jesus and the Lost Cause, and I'm going to be in the book of Luke, chapter number eight. I'm going to read a very familiar passage of scripture, and then I'm going to trust the Lord to bring something good out of me and deposit it in your heart this morning. Nobody should leave here today without hearing from the Lord in at least one area because there is so much in this passage. Luke 8, 26 Speaking of Jesus and the disciples, it says they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Come Holy Spirit, be the teacher. Be that agent of revelation. Take the word and make it multidimensional, not just print on paper. Let it be breath to us and life to us and instruction to us. And Lord, as we exalt you in this passage of scripture, I pray you'll do in this house, in this service, what you did there in the land of the Gerasenes. Find the one that's shackled in his or her darkness and evict whatever holds them down and fill them to the point that they just want to be with you. We ask it for your glory. You are worthy. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. How many of you have heard this passage before or read it? So I got saved in 1994 and I was delivered from a really reprobate lifestyle of addiction and bondage and alcoholism and drugs and all of the junk that's associated with that. And so I knew what it was like to be imprisoned. And I remember when I read this passage, 
maybe a little egotistical, but I said, I'm in the Bible. I am in the Bible. That's me. That's what happened to me. I'm in the Bible. And I knew it wasn't me, but I finally recognized, oh, wow. I always thought the Bible was boring, but the Bible is a mirror that reflects back truth on anyone that will gaze into it. And so when you read the Bible, there's just some accounts where you're going to say, I know how she feels, I know how he feels. And the beauty of the scriptures is that God will meet you in them. It is a living testimony. It's a living word. It's not a merely a historical informational book, but it is a potent living transformational book. And so we're big on the Bible around here, and I believe even today when, when we go through these verses, you're going to see why we preach the scriptures, because it is not, friends, because I need to tell you something you don't know. I just view the scriptures as, as the wave that God rides in on on that day and that morning, and it crashes on the shores of our hearts, and he brings about a change of the landscape in our lives. So let's look at it today. I want to start with what I'm calling just this intentional intersection. Jesus was on the other side of the sea. And so he says to his disciples, he says, let's go over there. Let's go to the other side of the sea. So Jesus wanted to go from point A to point B. He wanted to go to the land of the Gerasenes. And in between point A and point B was this insane storm that whipped up the wind and the waves. You know the story. And, and the, the disciples were panicking and freaking out. And Jesus just stood up and said, peace be still. And then they freaked out more because they looked at him and they said, the, the master has, has sovereign control over the wind and the waves. What kind of man is this? And so when the ship landed, the boat landed, they were here in this place where Jesus was going to intersect somebody. It's the only person he ministered to in the whole time he was on the other side of the sea. He only went for one person. Through all of the storm, through all of the wind, through all of the waves, this was an intentional intersection, just like I believe it's going to be for somebody here this morning. So what did he find? Jesus, first of all, met this prisoner of shame. He finds this guy. The Bible says as they sail to the country of the Gerasenes, opposite of Galilee, Jesus steps out of the boat and onto the land, and immediately there meets him a man from the city who had demons, plural. And for a long time, this man wore no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but he lived among the tombs. Now, just remember, guys, this was real. This was a real city, real people, and a real man possessed by real agents of darkness, multiple demons living within this man. And so this is the day-to-day -day life in Gadara, or the Gerasa, whichever one. The Bible calls it two different city names, same location. This man wakes up every day, and he's filled and controlled by evil demons. He walks around naked, and that speaks of his shame. So he's dirty, and he's naked, and he can't live in the city. And the Bible says in the other two synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, that they were constantly trying to bind this man. They wrapped him up with chains. They shackled his hands. They shackled his feet. But the demonic power inside of him was so potent that he would snap the chains, he'd tear off the shackles, and he'd terrorize people. I believe it's Matthew's gospel that says he's also spent time cutting himself. So he was self-destructed. He was homicidal. He was controlled and dominated by wickedness. And he woke up every day in the place of death. He lived in a graveyard. He, he was the epitome of somebody that was just controlled and submerged into a life of darkness. And Jesus said, I'm going to go meet that guy. I'm going to cross over this sea. And I'm going to go to the guy 
that has terrorized this city long enough, has hurt himself long enough, and has had the enemy with the upper hand in his life long enough. There's a beautiful thing called sovereignty. When God makes up his mind that enough is enough, the devil is in trouble. And the devil was about to be in trouble in this man's life. So, verse 28 and 29, Jesus took, over, took control over the situation. Look what the scriptures say. So the man saw Jesus, and he cries out, and he falls down before him, and he said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torment me. Why did he say that? Well, there's the, the, the um, indicator. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. So let me give you the scene. If you compare all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the scene is this. Jesus pulls up on the shore, the man along actually with another man. They're highlighting this man in Luke's Gospel. But another man was with them, both of them demonized. So this man comes forward, and as soon as Jesus sees him, he begins to command the evil spirit to come out of him. It's very interesting that in the Greek verb tenses, he had to say it more than once. Now you can read into that whatever you want, but don't read into this that Jesus wasn't in control. Whatever the situation was, Jesus was speaking authority over this demon over and over again. And so the man under the full control of this demonic influence is saying, don't torment me, don't torment me. The demonic realm only has evil pleasure. And that pleasure is only fulfilled when they have a physical instrument through which to work. And they had owned this man a long time. We already read the testimony about how dominated by darkness this guy was. He was in the property of Satan. He was in the paw of Satan. He was in the plans for Satan. And Jesus had come up and even the demons knew that they were in trouble. And the man falls down before Jesus. And as the demons took control of his vocal cord and his lips and his tongues, what came out was, don't torment us. You find in another place where he says, this demon-controlled man, don't send us into the abyss before the time. We can learn a lot about what the demons think and what they understand and what they know, and I'll talk about that here in a minute. But the one thing I want to show you here is that immediately with one sandal on the shore, Jesus takes over the entire situation. Look at the end of verse 29. This is why Jesus came. He determined to reverse this man's reality. Verse 29 at the end of it says, For many a time the demon had seized him. He was kept under guard. He was bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Now friends, just come on, let's, let's get out of our um, sophisticated, suburbanite, highly dignified Western mindset for a minute. And let's just go back 2,000 years ago. And this was this man's reality. Somewhere along the way, darkness had entered into him, and this was his life. I don't know if he was married. I don't know if he had kids. I know he had a mom and a dad at some point. And this man's life was nothing but shame and insanity and impossibility. You know, we don't have to stretch ourselves a whole lot to think about people in our own lives that have had similar testimonies, probably not as dramatic as this, but the same basic you know, descriptors over their life in bondage, walking in darkness, oblivious and, and, and powerless to change their own situation, uh, a torment to other people. You, one of the gospels says that when people would try to walk by certain areas, this guy would jump out and ambush them so that they couldn't get to where they were going. 
So this was the guy's testimony in the guy's life. And let me just tell you that uh, the Lord wasn't intimidated. The Lord didn't leave him to his own. The Lord didn't have the heart that said, well, he'll never change. The Lord actually set his affection on this man, and he was going to do something about it. Now, as we go on through this, I just want to leave you this now so you can be thinking about it as we go through it. There may be somebody in your life that because of their actions and their attitudes and their maybe even evil towards you, Maybe they abandoned you or abused you or betrayed you. Maybe they lied to you and stole from you. And I don't want to give you the whole list, but you know that there is the propensity in us to give up on people because we see them as too far gone. There was another account in the Gospels where somebody went up to a person that was seeking help for Jesus so her daughter, his daughter might be saved, and somebody stepped in and, and, and he said, don't trouble the master, your daughter is dead. And I'm just here to tell you, trouble the master trouble the master it's not trouble for him it doesn't bother him so let's go further into the text and go beyond the intentional intersection and here's where we're going to see what i call a revelation of kingdom authority this is what it looks like this is what it can look like it's what it did look like but it's what it can look like what it should look like and what it will look like if we will get into a place of intimacy and alignment with the Lord and abide there, this will not be, wow, history. This will be hallelujah in the present. Well, what am I talking about? Well, Jesus is about to evict the enemy, and so let's just walk through this with him. Again, verse 30, nothing intimidates Jesus. So Jesus says, what is your name? You can almost hear the man growl it, legion. Legion was a term that described a, a large body of uh, Roman soldiers that worked and fought and warred together in order to conquer the enemy. And the Bible just gives the footnote, many demons had entered into him. Now, we don't know how many, but isn't one nightmarish enough? And this man had at least enough in him to where when they were evicted, they killed a whole herd of pigs. So I don't even know how that works, and I don't want to know experientially how that works, but I know when I read that, I'm thinking all of that evil housed inside of one individual, and Jesus looks at him and commands him, tell me what your name is. I want to know your name. And the response, probably the enemy trying to pull a little swag, he says, we are legion, we are many. And Jesus wasn't rattled. Let me give you something that I, I think we can grow in. Hell understands Christ's authority. Hell understands Christ's authority. Look in verse 31. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. He gave them permission. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, I want you to follow the Holy Spirit-inspired record there. That as the demons were there, they knew immediately that they were subjected to the authority of Jesus Christ. I want to take you back into eternity past. You've got to remember, before these were fallen demons, they were angels. Satan, the high angel in heaven, wanted the throne of God for himself. God would have none of that. He evicted Satan out of heaven. 
cast him down, and Satan took with him one-third of the angels. And so all of these angels at one point had seen the Son of Man in the full glory as the Son of God. And they could see what often the people around Jesus couldn't see. And that is why the demons were crying out for, from this man, because they know the show was about to be over for them. And, and listen, they immediately had to enter into this position of submission and inferiority to the Son of God. And so they said, please don't send us out of the man. They, they knew he was going to, but they were scrambling. They were grasping. The Bible says they begged him. They couldn't bear the thought of turning loose of this man who had been their, their, their property for so long. You see, brothers and sisters, without, without sounding like too fringe charismatic for you, I also don't want to run the risk on the other side, which is to acquiesce to this idea that we don't have any demonic issues in America. Brothers and sisters, I, I will say this to you. Demons are rational creatures. They have an intellect, they have a will, and they have an agenda. They don't take vacations. They don't retire. They are, in fact, probably more committed to their mission than most of the churches today to our mission. And so they, they don't have anything to do except the will of their evil father. They want to seek to kill and steal and destroy. And they will morph their agenda according to whatever culture they're working in. Now, when I traveled over to Africa, I have seen overt demonstrations of demonic activity. I've seen it. I've seen it with my eyes. I had a man following me and growling, and I looked into his eyes, and I'm saying, there's a demon right there. And on the inside, I was like, oh, God, help me. <laughs> but on the outside, I took authority over that thing, looked him in the eye, and started praising Jesus, and the thing just subsides. It just is taken down a notch. Now, Demons in America may not be that overt. They may be, but we live in a sophisticated intellectual culture. So the demonic activity in America and much of the West revolves around philosophies and ideologies. And so they want to shape the way we think. They don't want to pull off the mask and say, ah, because that doesn't work over here. We would say that's a demonic entity. We, we rebuke you in the name of Jesus. So they work more subtly. And so they want to take control of avenues of thought. And they want to influence systems of government. And they want to move in stealth mode. Regardless of whether it's overt or covert, I just want to go ahead and submit the fact that, friends, none of us are immune from the reality of demonic activity. I'll even go so far as this, that if you've set your life for the glory of Jesus, there is demonic activity coming against you regularly. Regularly. Now, it doesn't mean you're a victim. It doesn't mean that you are uh, doomed. It doesn't mean you're going to fail. And it doesn't mean you need to walk around and blame every single problem on your life on the boogeyman. You can't do that. But what it does mean is we've got to remain in a level of awareness and recognize that we are participants in a cosmic battle between God and Satan. And we have already been granted the victory, yet every skirmish has not been settled yet. And so as we see this, Jesus is taking control, and he gives them permission to leave this man's body. And yet note this, before I, before I finish this point, they begged him. I mean, they're, they're begging the Son of God. Get that in your mind. That's, that's the way they, they operate with the Son of God. And just, I want you to picture this. If you're ever afraid of the demonic, 
Remember how they operated in the presence of Jesus, and you just stay in the presence of Jesus. That's what you do. And you'll get to experience. Resist the devil and he, submit yourself unto the Lord. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. But they, they begged him. They something in particular. Please don't send us into the abyss. Please don't send us into the abyss. One of the other gospel writers uh, gave the full quote. Please don't send us into the, the abyss before the time. See, they know their destiny. They know what God has chronicled for them. They understand that their time is limited. There's another reference in Scripture, and the reference slips me right now, but it says that the devil came down full of wrath because he knew his time was short. You go into the book of Revelation, chapter number 11, it references the abyss being opened up during the tribulation time, and scores of demonized demonic activity just start coming up from the abyss. It's in Revelation 9 and 11 and 17, in Revelation chapter number 20, that the abyss seems to be, the best we can tell, the place where incarcerated demons are put. Not every demon is incarcerated, but some are, and these demons are aware that some of their brother demons had already been sent to the abyss look at the Son of God, and they said, please don't send us into the abyss prematurely. Let me unpack that. We know it's coming, but please don't let it be today. Now, if we could start getting our minds wrapped around that, if we could start thinking like Christians who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and we could start walking in the authority that God has given us and the boldness that God has given us, and start living a holy life that welcomes and invites the power of God to come forth from our lives, then friends, the, the devil and the demons wouldn't get so much press in the church anymore. So he's, he's got them where he wants them. Verse 33. I want to tell you this, that Scripture validates Satan's powers. What did the demons do? The demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and drowned so the other end of the spectrum is i ain't worried about the devil i don't pay no attention to the devil and it's almost a cavalier flippant attitude you've got to stay somewhere in the radical middle you don't want to be afraid of the enemy but you don't want to be ignorant of his devices see the bible describes satan and he's real listen he's real He's a living creature. He's not a symbol that embodies all that is evil. He's an actual personality. He is an angel that was cast out of the highest heaven because he wanted to be like God and because he could not get the glory of God here on earth. He wants to destroy anything that reveals the glory of God. And the thing that reveals the glory of God most is the Christian. And so Satan's strategies are to keep in bondage what he already has in bondage and then to seek to diminish the glory light coming off of the church. So he assigns a lot of resources to the church because we're the only thing that can bring God glory, the same glory that Satan wanted for himself. So he's destructive and he's merciless and he's cruel and he's twisted and he's deceptive and he's evil. And my friends, listen. He's the thief to whom a lot of people are opening the door. Now, if I can just get a little old-fashioned on you. The enemy works primarily through the way we think. And therefore, we are to guard our minds. We are to guard our hearts. 
There's a lot of things that come under the banner of entertainment that we send our kids off to watch on a Friday night. And it fills their minds with the very things that source themselves in the strategy of hell. And we call it entertainment. I told you I was going to get old-fashioned, but it's only as old-fashioned as the scripture truth is. And listen, I'm not going to tell you what to do and where to go and what to listen to and what to watch, but the Holy Spirit will. And when we crack open doors to things that are clearly sourced in the uh, dominion of the enemy, whether it be immorality or whether it be the, the occult, whether it be the uh, aggrandizing of, of vicious violence and sadistic evil or licentious sex. We pay our $12.50 to get a ticket, and we just sit in front of it for two hours, and then we wonder why we can't worship on Sunday. <laughs> now listen, that's all I'm going to say about it, but I hope you heard it. You see, the things that God has destined for this assembly... It's not going to be able to be fulfilled by a compromised congregation or leadership. It just doesn't work that way. And so when, when I want to be close to Jesus, I want to make sure that, that what I'm doing and what I'm believing and what I'm seeing and what I'm filling into this mind, I don't want all of that to be tainted because it came from the source of the enemy's camp. Because he's evil. And he's merciless. He's cutthroat. He doesn't want to bother you. He wants to consume you. His strategy for your children is not to make the high school years rough. It's to make sure they die before high school's up. His strategy for every church is not simply, you know, to a little murmuring here. Oh, he'll do that, by the way. I've seen that. But it's not simply a little murmuring here, a little dissatisfaction over here. You didn't get your way over here. He wants to get, listen, when Satan couldn't destroy the church, he just joined it. And, and he just wants to come in under the radar. How in the world are we going to be able to discern that activity? We're going to discern that activity because we're going to be standing with the one and abiding in the one who stepped on the shore and knew immediately, here comes Legion and the man I'm about to deliver. In America, the enemy tries to keep his activity out of the spotlight. He prefers to operate under the radar, behind the scenes, and he, he's the puppeteer. He likes to just kind of control what influences us. So be aware. Back to the narrative. Here's what I call an acceptable mess for solving a crisis. It's about to get messy up in Gadara. It's about to get messy, and Jesus doesn't apologize. I love this about the Savior. He is about to jack up this day for a lot of people in order that he might rescue this one man. First of all, so the demons come out of the guy, and they give him a bunch of pigs. And the pigs go swimming, but they can't swim. So they go drowning. Somebody owned the pigs. That was somebody's paycheck. By the way, if these were Hebrew people, they were already violating the law of God because they weren't supposed to have any pigs. So before, I remember an unbeliever told me one time we were going over this. I worked with a guy. I had been saved about a year. And he, he was literally, he was indicting Jesus for ruining that, that pig herder's business. And that was his reason why he didn't want to come to the gospel because Jesus, 2,000 years ago, messed up a farmer's bank account. 
People do anything to avoid accountability with the Son of God. But, but watch these people. They get their emotions triggered here in verse 34. The herdsmen saw what happened, and they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Now, I grew up in the suburbs. I don't know anything about pigs. But I've, I've, I've seen enough, and I've heard enough. Those are some loud, squeaky creatures. And you got a whole herd of them who are now being run by demons on the inside. I mean, it's evil bacon, man. It's just flirting. And they're squealing and they're absurd. I mean, they're just going berserk. And they just, I mean, and the, the herders are just standing there watching. It all happens in a matter of moments. And all you see is little curly tails and bubbles coming up from the lake. <laughs> so they fled. And they went and told it in the city and, and in the country. They went and told on Jesus, and Jesus came in there and messed stuff up for him. We see emotions triggered, but watch this. It goes deeper. We see minds blown. Look down in verse 35. So the people from the city and the countryside go out, and they wanted to see what happened. And they came to Jesus, the first thing they noticed, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and now they were afraid. The Bible goes on to say, and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Now, this was the local terrorist that was now sitting at the feet. He's the naked terrorist who lives in the graveyard and nobody can tame. And when, when all these people come rushing back because word's been spread in the inner city and on the countryside, and they're coming back and they see the local terrorists cleaned up, finally Joker's got some britches on, and he's sitting at the feet of Jesus and he's just listening to the Lord. And the Bible mentions it twice. The demons are gone. The demons are gone. Well, Hallelujah! He got his life back. He got delivered. He got set free. He got transformed. All of the evil was now gone. He was, for the first time, he had, he had his sanity back. Yes. Now, I think about that in our city. And as Newbridge and IHOP Atlanta come together, friends, God is not just going to say, I want to do this so y'all can have good services. It's, it's not for marketing. Frankly, we're not trying to get more people, more Christians to come here. That's not the goal. We don't even have enough room for, for what we've got to begin with. We're not trying to be a mega church. What are we trying to do? We're trying to bring community and prayer and fuse them where they're inseparable from each other. And so from the, the source of 24-7 night and day worship and prayer that you can partake in anytime you want, and from the loving relationships of community and connectivity in the part that Newbridge supplies to this equation. What do we want to do? We want to be the church. We want to pulse with the life of God. Why? Because all in our city, man, there are people that are in the control of the enemy. And Jesus wants power to flow out of this house into our neighborhoods, into our schools, into our streets, onto our ball fields. He wants power to come out of here. And so that, it, it, listen, he doesn't row up to the shore anymore. He just sends you. Yes. And the dominion of darkness, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, I think the, it is for this reason that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. So that's, that wasn't like then, and he's doing something different now. There's something in the heart of God that likes 
to destroy openly the power of Satan. God's not polite with Satan. God, God is not a southern gentleman. God will say to the devil, in your diabolical face, Satan, I'm taking back what you thought you owned. And, and we've got to get to a certain point. I don't believe in strutting as a Christian or, you know, I don't want to be casual or flippant with spiritual warfare. But I also don't want to be cringing in a corner saying, devil, if you don't mind, we'd like to get a little property back from you. Friends, it's, it's, it's the Lord's. Jesus died for people. If they, will, if they will believe, they'll be set free. I know I was one of those guys. I lived in that darkness. I was suicidal. I was homicidal. I was in bondage. I was empty. I was angry. I was lost. I was sick. I, I would spend days weeping just in utter darkness. And I, I, I actually thought I was a Christian because I prayed a little prayer when I was nine and got baptized when I was 14. And I had religion, but I had no power. When Jesus saved me on August 4th of 1994, I'm telling you, I heard the chains falling, amen. He set me free. I've never been the same, never. And there are people within five miles of here, there are tens of thousands of people who are hovering in the darkness. And I want to have good services, man, I do. But if all the power that Newbridge and IHOP display together is contained in this building, we have failed. It is meant to bubble in here, but it is meant to cascade out there. So it blew their mind. I Remember, this is, this is all about a mess. I mean, Jesus made a mess to save this guy. Uh-oh, I can feel it. I'm going to warn you again. Here it comes. I've been warning every Sunday about the mess that's coming. And people are like, mess? he's just... That's hyperbole. No, it's a promise. <laughs> There's a mess coming. And it's going to be bigger than you not being able to find your seat on April 22nd because somebody new sat in it. It's going to be bigger than a crowded parking lot. See, the Lord's about to start um, unwrapping kingdom in this place. And I just got all these metaphors running my mind. We have two kids. Alicia, when she was little, when she would open something, a gift, like Christmas, she would peel it, peel it open, untie the ribbon, set it aside, put the paper in, lift up the box, set it aside. Woo! You know, that, that's, Alicia was very formatted. Landon's like a bulldozer. He's, he's, he's opening it with his teeth. He's like, ah! And, and listen, when kingdom gets opened here, it's going to be more like Landon than Alicia. So don't say I didn't warn you. So their minds were blown. All because Jesus loved this guy and wanted to save him. Everybody else was afraid of him, but Jesus loved him. Everybody else just wished the guy would go away, but Jesus wanted the guy to come to him. And he transformed him. And the fellow's just sitting there, brand new. He got brand new. Verse 37, this is the danger. Let's be warned here. We see hearts hardened. Then all of the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him, asked Jesus, to depart from him. For they were seized with great fear. So he got, out, he got into the boat and, and returned. The biggest miracle that had ever happened in that city had just occurred. 
A soul just got delivered. A life just got transformed. Copious amounts of demons were excommunicated from the territory. So there was new spiritual potential in the area because darkness had, had been taken out of the area. And the response of the people was to look at Jesus and say, please leave. Leave now. The Bible says it's because they were afraid. I don't know what all they were afraid of, but basically it boils down to this. What Jesus wanted to do was too big for their box. And so when Jesus said, bye-bye box, they said, bye-bye Jesus. But here's the scariest thing. They asked him to leave, and he said, okay. That's the scariest thing. The scariest thing is he didn't launch into some lesson about how good it would be if he remained. He didn't give them a, a long list of benefits if they would just get used to him. He went in there and moved in such a powerful way that, yeah, it cost those pig farmers money. I mean, that was, that was capital running down into the lake and dying. He messed, up every, he messed up the whole system. It just reminds me, listen, some people are okay living in a system as, long, uh, living in a system as long as they can appropriately manage the darkness that's there. That's, that's like, listen, I don't want to be hypercritical. That's like a lot of people in the church. You know, I got my system. I got my religion. I go to church on Sunday. I tithe. I, I, you know, I do this. I do that. I, I, got my, I got my vibe with Jesus. And, it, it, you know, my, my porn addiction is just something I'm living with. No, friend, you can, be, you can actually be delivered from that. Like today. You can, you, can be all, you can be permanently delivered from that addiction or any other addiction. Yeah, I worship, I do this, I'm part of the uh, worship community over at New Bridge, and yeah, man, I love the Lord, but, but you're mean as a snake to your wife. See, it's easy to get into a system where you, you, you're working it, and you're just managing darkness. Listen, we're not called to manage sin, we're called to crucify the body. We're called to crucify it with the affections and the lusts thereof. And Jesus, Jesus just is so available. That's an amazing thing when you come to him. He doesn't, he doesn't yell at you and condemn you for 20 minutes and then say, all right, now I'll save you. That's not the way he operates. You just come to him. And there's no big speech. There's just love. There's just grace. There's just the, the, the bestowing of the sacrifice he paid 2,000 years ago. He doesn't give you some lecture. He just liberates you. But they didn't want that. And so we, we see in their dismissal of him this principle. Listen, if you don't desire his presence, he'll accommodate that. That's scary. The worst thing that can ever happen is for Jesus to pull away. Everybody that enters into the lake of fire will have one thing in common. In their life, they wanted full independence from God. And they got it. That's the culture of hell. Full independence from God forever in a place where God is no more available. I don't know what happened with these people in Gadara, but I do know that 
Jesus got back into the boat and returned. But let's end on a high note, not a heavy note. Let's end on a high note. There was this impartation of purpose for this soul freed. This soul just got freed. And before the Lord left, he's going to impart this guy with purpose. Verse 38 shows this man's new desire. (laughs) I love this. This is so good. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. So all of his neighbors kicked Jesus out. Imagine what a downer, man, for that guy. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus saying, this is my best friend. I love this man. This man set me free. This is my master. This is my Messiah. I'm going to spend every day. Can you be back tomorrow at 8 a.m.? Let's spend a morning. Teach me everything you know about the kingdom of God. And then his neighbor said, "Uh, you need to leave. And Jesus says, okay. And he's getting back into the boat. And the guy's watching the one that just transformed his life get back in the boat. And and he's willing to forsake anything and everything, every connection, every relationship that might have been repaired. He's saying, nothing is more important to me than to be with this one that just transformed me. And he begs him, let me go with you, let me go with you, let me go with you. That's an awesome thing. Is that not the heartbeat of all of us when we're in the right place with God? Listen, it's easier to sing than to live. Lord of all, Lord of all, Lord of all, Lord of all, Lord of all. We sang that a bunch this morning. It's easy to sing, but man, our thirst is we want to live that. It's it's easy to preach about intimacy with the Almighty, but Monday morning's coming, and so is my schedule. So I got to live it out. And this guy just, he just reveals that innocent, newborn desire. He's like, I want to go with you. Leave Peter here. I'll take his spot. You know, (laughs) it's like, just let me go. Just, just a, a pastoral word. I'm almost done. Worship team, y'all can come on up. Um, the barometer for, for my soul is when I can go a day or two and not sense that yearning to get away with him privately, quietly, and lastingly. And I, I sadly confess that happens in the grind of my schedule in my life. I can go a couple of days and be oblivious. It doesn't mean I'm not praying. It doesn't mean I'm jumping off the deep end into sin or anything like that. It just means I'm too busy. Yeah. And you, if you're losing that, Jesus, let me in the boat with you. Wherever you go, I want to go. I'm not even asking where you're going. Wherever you are, that's where I want to be. Just let let me go with you. If you're losing that, I just tell you by way of my own confession a moment ago, that's, that's, that's your barometer. That's your radar. That's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, slow down. Slow down. Get in the boat. Sit by him. Sit with him. Lay your head in his lap, however you want to phrase it. But hey... When he moves, make sure you're moving with him. That's a word for our church. He's going to be moving. And the heartbeat of all of us needs to be, make sure there's room for me in the ship, Jesus. Now, for this man in the natural, Jesus had a different plan. He's going to impart a purpose to this guy. So he he gives the guy who has the new desire, he gives that guy a new mission. Jesus sent him away. That sounds kind of cruel. It does, it, it does just like, oh, man, that's not tender. That's not sweet. That's not nice. Well, listen, Jesus knew that he would never preach another sermon in that land, so he left a sermon. Y'all did not feel me on that. He would not be able to preach a sermon in Gadara 
So he looks and he says, there's my sermon. And he says to this guy, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And so the man went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. I think he understood a theological point that, that a lot of people don't understand. Jesus gave him instructions. Go tell them what God did for you. And, and he looks at Jesus and goes, okay, I'll go tell them what you did for me. Amen. Go tell them what God did for you. Okay, I'm going to tell them what you did for me. He understands something. That he's not just in the presence of a prophet. Amen. He's not just in the presence of a, a maverick rabbi who works miracles. He knew what was in him. And he was absolutely... 100% convinced this is the son of God and he became an evangelist no training no education no discipleship I mean he's, he's, he's living in the city where they don't want Jesus and Jesus says uh, here's your mission go declare to everybody what has just occurred with you by the way you'll find out a little bit later that the, this area it's called Decapolis it's an area of 10 cities you'll find out by the time that Paul is ministering that there are churches there who do you think was the first witness that planted the seed of the gospel that sprouted into the Decapolis, becoming no longer the property of, of, of destructive demons, but becoming the property of God through his church. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Will you stand up?